Welcome to As Yet Unexplained, where we explore the most fascinating mysteries from around the world. In this episode, we delve into the enigmatic case of the Somerton Man, whose body was found on the beach at Somerton Park, South Australia, on the 1st of December, 1948. Since the early stages of the police investigation, the case has been considered one of Australia's most profound mysteries, and its public interest remains significant. The case received its name from a scrap of paper found in the fob pocket of the man's trousers, with the Persian phrase Tamam Shad, meaning it's over or it's finished. Join us as we explore this intriguing case and attempt to unravel its many mysteries. Before we begin, we would like to provide a brief warning. The subject matter we'll be discussing in this episode may contain unsettling descriptions and could be distressing for some listeners. We understand that some of our listeners may find the content of this episode difficult to hear, and we advise caution if you are easily affected by such topics. However, if you're feeling brave and curious, please sit back and immerse yourself in this mysterious and captivating tale. Throughout this episode, we'll examine the circumstances surrounding the discovery of the body, the clues that investigators found, and the many theories that have been proposed over the years to explain this strange case. We'll also be exploring the latest developments in the case, including the recent identification of Carl Webb as the Somerton Man. What does this new information tell us about the case? And is it possible that we might finally be able to solve this decades-old mystery? As we delve into this case, we would like to remind our listeners that with every story there are always victims. While we find the mysteries surrounding the Somerton Man to be fascinating, it is important to remember that this was a real person who met a tragic end. We encourage our listeners to reflect on the impact that this case has had on the lives of those involved, and to approach this episode with empathy and sensitivity. We value your support and would like to encourage you to like, subscribe or leave a review on your preferred platform if you have enjoyed this episode. We are also interested in hearing your thoughts and insights on this case. However, we would like to reiterate the importance of being respectful and considerate towards those who have been affected by unexplained phenomena. Initial Discovery and Investigation On December the 1st, 1948, at 6.30am, the police received a call about an unidentified man's body on Somerton Park Beach, near Glenelg, South Australia. Glenelg 
is a suburb in the city of Adelaide, South Australia. It is located on the shore of Holfast Bay in Gulf St Vincent and is a popular tourist destination. The suburb has a long sandy beach which is a popular spot for swimming, fishing and boating. There are also numerous cafes, restaurants and shops in the area. Glenelg is known for its heritage architecture, including the Glenelg Town Hall and the former Bay Theatre. It is also home to several parks, including Wigley Reserve and Collie Reserve. The sleepy suburb of Somerton Park in South Australia was jolted awake on that fateful morning. The discovery of an unidentified man's body lying back against the sea wall sent shivers down the spine of the community. The man's head rested gently on the cold, hard surface, and his legs were extended before him, with his feet crossed at the ankles, as if he had simply drifted off into a deep slumber. But there was an eerie aura to the scene that could not be ignored. The man was found in a peaceful location, but there was an unmistakable darkness that seemed to emanate from his presence. The unlit cigarette lying on the right collar of his coat seemed to have been placed there with care, as if it were a clue to a greater mystery. A search of his pockets revealed several mundane items. An unused rail ticket, a bus ticket, a comb, a half-empty packet of gum, and a quarter-full box of matches. But there was something unnerving about them. Were they just random objects he happened to carry with him, or were they clues to his identity, or even his death? The man's Britisher appearance suggested he had a British or Anglo-Saxon background, and at 40 to 45 years old, he was in top physical condition. But his last meal, a pasty eaten only hours before his death, gave no indication of a foreign substance that could have caused his demise. The cause of death remained a mystery, but the suspicion of poisoning hung in the air, casting a sinister shadow over the otherwise peaceful beach. The tranquil location was a stark contrast to the dark and foreboding atmosphere that seemed to pervade the scene. What had led this man to this spot? Was he alone, or had he been in the company of others? What secrets had he carried with him, and what had ultimately led to his untimely demise? The unanswered question seemed to swirl around the lifeless body like a menacing fog, taunting those who sought answers. The man's body lay motionless, but the mystery surrounding him was alive and well. A sense of unease settled over the community as they struggled to come to terms with the inexplicable circumstances surrounding the man's death. It was as if the stranger had brought with him a weight of darkness that refused to be lifted. Even as the sun rose higher in the sky, casting light on the scene, the sense of gloom remained, as if the beach itself was tainted by the man's presence. On the evening of November the 30th, several witnesses came forward to report seeing a man 
resembling the Somerton man lying on his back in the same spot where the corpse was later found. One couple saw him at around 7pm and noted that they saw him extend his right arm to its fullest extent and then drop it limply. They observed this action several times before deciding to leave the area. Another couple saw him from 7.30pm to 8pm, during which time the streetlights had come on. They did not see him move during the half an hour in which he was in view, although they had the impression that his position had changed slightly. One witness reported observing a man looking down at the sleeping man from the top of the steps that led to the beach. The witness described the man as clean-cut, between 30 and 40 years old, and wearing a sports coat, grey trousers and a hat. The witness reported that the man had a narrow, pointed face and small, piercing eyes. Another witness came forward in 1959 and reported that he and three others had seen a well-dressed man carrying another man on his shoulders along Somerton Park Beach the night before the body was found. The witness described the man being carried as aged between 25 and 30, of medium height and build, with fair to ginger-coloured hair. The witness described the man doing the carrying as about 40, clean-shaven with a medium build, wearing a grey suit and a white shirt with a black tie. The pathologist John Burton Cleland described the man as having a Britisher appearance and being approximately 40 to 45 years old. He was in excellent physical shape, 180 centimetres, 5 foot 11 inches tall, with grey eyes, fair to ginger-coloured hair, slightly grey around the temples, with broad shoulders and a narrow waist, hands and nails that showed no sign of manual labour, a big and little toes that met in a wedge shape, like those of a dancer or someone who wore boots with pointed toes, and pronounced high calf muscles consistent with people who regularly wore boots or shoes with high heels or performed ballet. The man was found wearing an unusual outfit, consisting of a white shirt, brown trousers, a brown knitted pullover and a fashionable grey and brown double-breasted jacket that was reportedly tailored in the United States. The man's attention to detail was evident in the fact that he wore matching red, white and blue accessories, including a tie, socks and shoes. Interestingly, he also carried a narrow aluminium comb that had been manufactured in the USA. Upon closer inspection, it became apparent that all labels on the man's clothing had been removed and he carried no hat or wallet. These details, coupled with the fact that the man was clean-shaven and carried no identification, led police to believe that he may have committed suicide. Despite extensive efforts, the authorities were not able to match the man's dental records to any known person. An autopsy was conducted and the pathologist estimated the time of death to be around 2am on the 1st of December. While the circumstances surrounding the man's death remain a mystery, the level of detail and care put into his appearance has left many wondering about his life and the events that led to his untimely demise. The heart was a normal size, and normal in every way, 
Small vessels, not commonly observed in the brain, were easily discernible with congestion. There was a congestion of the pharynx, and the gullet was covered with whitening of superficial layers of the mucosa, with a patch of ulceration in the middle of it. The stomach was deeply congested. There was congestion in the second half of the duodenum. There was blood mixed with the food in the stomach. Both kidneys were congested, and the liver contained a great excess of blood in the vessels. The spleen was strikingly large, about three times the normal size. There was destruction at the centre of the liver lobules, revealed under the microscope. Acute gastritis, hemorrhage, extensive congestion of the liver and spleen, and congestion of the brain. The autopsy report, which revealed that the man had eaten a pasty a few hours before his death, was inconclusive. There was no clear indication of a foreign substance in his body, which made the investigation more challenging. Despite this, poisoning was still suspected as the cause of his demise. However, the pasty was not believed to be the source of the poison. This raised the question of how the man had come into contact with the lethal substance, whatever it may be. The pathologist, Dr. Dwyer, concluded that the death was not natural and suggested that the poison used was likely a barbiturate or a soluble hypnotic. These types of substances are commonly used to induce sleep or reduce anxiety, but can be deadly in high doses. Despite this, the coroner was unable to determine the man's identity or the exact cause of death. The limited information made the investigation even more complicated. It was also unclear whether the man, who was seen alive at Somerton Beach on the evening of the 30th November, was the same person whose body was later found. No one had seen his face at that time, making identification difficult. Given the lack of information, the police were unable to confirm a positive identification and the body was embalmed on the 10th of December 1948. This was the first time that such action was needed in such circumstances, according to the authorities. The case remained unsolved for many years, with many theories and speculations emerging about the man's identity and the cause of this death. Despite numerous investigations, the mystery remains unsolved to this day, and the case is still considered one of the most intriguing mysteries in criminal history. Discovery of Suitcase On January the 14th, 1949, a brown suitcase was discovered at the Adelaide Railway Station. The label had been removed. The detectives believed it belonged to the Somerton man. The suitcase had been checked into the cloakroom of the station on November the 30th, 1948, after 11am, and it contained a variety of items that left the detectives scratching their heads. Inside the suitcase, detectives found a red checkered dressing gown, a size 7 red felt pair of slippers, four pairs of underpants, pyjamas, 
shaving items and a light brown pair of trousers with sand in the cuffs. But that was not all. There was also an electrician's screwdriver, a table knife that had been cut down into a short, sharp instrument, and a pair of scissors with sharpened points. A small square of zinc, believed to have been used as a protective sheath for the knife and scissors, was also found. Additionally, there was a stenciling brush, as used by third officers on merchant ships for stenciling cargo. But the most intriguing item was a thread card of Barber brand orange waxed thread of an unusual type, not available in Australia. This thread was the same type used to repair the lining in a pocket of the trousers that the dead man was wearing. All identification marks on the clothes had been removed, but police found the name T. Keen on a tie. Keen on a laundry bag and Keen on a singlet. Three dry cleaning marks were also found. 1171-7, and 3053-7. Police believe that whoever removed the clothing tags either overlooked these three items or purposefully left the Keen tags on the clothes, knowing Keen was not the dead man's name. With wartime rationing still enforced, clothing was difficult to acquire at that time. Although it was a very common practice to use name tags, it was also common when buying second-hand clothes to remove the tags of the previous owners. What was unusual was that there was no spare socks found in the case, and no correspondence, although the police found pencils and unused letter stationery. The coat found in the case had a front gusset and feather stitching indicating it was manufactured in the United States. It was not an imported coat, which in turn suggested the man who owned it either travelled to the US or bought it from someone who had a similar size and had visited the country. The police conducted an investigation by checking the records of incoming trains and concluded that the man arrived at the Adelaide railway station from either Melbourne, Sydney or Port Augusta via an overnight train. They speculated that he may have taken a shower and shaved at the city baths located adjacent to the station before heading back to the train station to purchase a ticket for the 10.50am train to Henley Beach. However, for some unknown reason, he either missed the train or did not catch it at all. After that, he checked his suitcase at the station cloakroom before leaving the station and catching a city bus to Glenelg. The centre named City Baths was not a public bathing facility, but rather a public swimming pool. The railway station bathing facilities were adjacent to the station cloakroom, which itself was adjacent to the station's southern exit onto North Terrace. On the other hand, the City Baths on King William Street were accessed from the station's northern exit via a lane way. There is no record of the station's bathroom facilities being unavailable on the day he arrived. In conclusion, the police had to dig deeper into the man's background to determine the reason why he missed the train and why he chose to check his suitcase at the cloakroom rather than bring it with him to Glenelg. 
inquest. The inquest into the Somerton man's death, led by coroner Thomas Erskine Clayland, began shortly after the body was found and was adjourned until June the 17th, 1949. Clayland re-examined the body and discovered that the man's shoes were clean and polished rather than in the condition expected of a man who had been wandering around all day. Clayland noted that this evidence supported the theory that the body may have been brought to Somerton Park after the man's death, which could account for the lack of evidence of vomiting and convulsions, the two main physiological reactions to poison. As none of the witnesses could positively identify the man seen alive the previous night as the same person discovered the next morning, Clayland speculated that the man may have died elsewhere and been dumped. However, he stressed that this was purely speculative and all witnesses believed it was the same person due to the body's location and distinctive position and he found no evidence indicating the identity of the deceased. Vomiting and convulsions are the two main physiological reactions to poison. The exact cause of these reactions depends on the type of poison and how it is ingested, but they are both typically the body's way of trying to eliminate the poison. Vomiting helps to remove the poison from the stomach, while convulsions can be a result of the poison effect in the nervous system. However, in the case of the Somerton man, there was no evidence of either reaction, which has led investigators to believe that the poison used may have been a barbiturate or a soluble hypnotic that could have killed him before these symptoms even developed. Cedric Stanton Hicks, a professor of physiology and pharmacology at the University of Adelaide, testified that a group of drugs including number one and number two were highly toxic in a small oral dose that could be difficult to identify even if it had been suspected. Hicks gave Clayland the names of these two drugs, which were not released to the public until the 1980s because they were easily obtainable from a chemist without needing to provide a reason for their purchase. Hicks noted that the absence of evidence of vomiting was the only fact not found in relation to the body, but he could not make a frank conclusion without it. Hicks stated that if death had occurred seven hours after the man was last seen to move, it would imply a massive dose that could still be undetectable. Despite these findings, Clayland was unable to determine the cause of death of the unidentified man. Following the inquest, the authorities made a plaster cast of the man's head and shoulders, but even this effort was unsuccessful in identifying the man or determining the cause of death. The plaster cast was used to create a bust of the man, which was publicly displayed in the hope that someone would recognise him. Unfortunately, this effort was also unsuccessful in identifying the man or determining the cause of death. The cast and bust were later destroyed, but a bust made in 1949 by the artist Paul Montford is still on display at the Art Gallery of South Australia. The bust is made of plaster and is a replica of the original cast. It is believed to be the most accurate representation of the Somerton man's face and is the only known image of him.
connection to the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam. A small piece of paper with Taman Shad printed on it was found in a fob pocket sewn within the man's trousers. The phrase was identified as meaning ended or finished and was part of the last page of the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam. Police located a copy of the Rubiat from which the Taman Shad page had been torn. A man referred to as Ronald Francis by Detective Sergeant Lionel Lean to protect his privacy showed police a 1941 edition of Edward Fitzgerald's translation of the Rubiat, published by Whitcomb and Tombs in Christchurch, New Zealand. Francis had not considered that the book might be connected to the case until he had seen an article in the previous day's newspaper. The Rubiat of Omar Khayyam is a collection of poems that was first published in 1859. It consists of quatrains of four-line stanzas that explore themes of love, life and the human condition. The book is a translation of the work of Persian poet Omar Khayyam, who lived in the 11th and 12th centuries. The poems have been translated into several languages and have been widely read and appreciated around the world. The book's popularity has led to many adaptations and interpretations over the years, and it has become an important piece of literature in many cultures. There is some uncertainty about when and where the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam book was found. Some reports suggest it was found about a week or two before the body was discovered, while others suggested it was found shortly after the man was found on the beach. This is significant because the man is believed to have arrived in Adelaide the day before the body was found. If the book was found one or two weeks before, it implies that the man had visited Adelaide previously or had been in the city for an extended period. Most accounts state that the book was found in an unlocked car parked in Jetty Road, Glenelg, either in the rear floor well or on the back seat. The book's connection to the Summerton Man case has sparked widespread interest in the book and its contents, with many people speculating about the identity of the man and the meaning behind the mysterious phrase Taman Shad found in the book. This phrase is believed to be the last words of the man before he died, and its meaning remains a mystery to this day. The police had a theory that the Summerton man had taken his own life by poison. This theory was based on the possibility that the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam could have inspired him to live life to the fullest without any regrets. However, this theory lacked supporting evidence. When the book was found, the words Taman Shad were missing from its last page. The back of the book contained faint indentations, which were believed to be an error in encryption. The indentations represented five lines of text in capital letters, with the second line struck out. The scrap of paper found in the fob pocket of the Somerton man's trousers is believed to begin with the letter W, although the first line of text is unclear. The line of text below it reads M-L-I-A-O-I, with the last character in the line of text looking like an L, but is actually formed from an I, and the extension of the line used to delete or underline the line of text. There is an X above the last O in the code, 
but it is not known if this was significant to the code or not. Attempts to decode Cryptographers are experts in the field of cryptography, which is the practice of secure communication in the presence of third parties. Cryptography involves techniques such as encryption, decryption and code-breaking. Cryptographers design and analyse cryptographic algorithms which are used to protect sensitive information, such as financial transactions, military communications and personal data. They work in a variety of industries including government, finance and technology and are responsible for maintaining security of confidential information. Cryptographers may also be involved in developing new technologies and techniques to enhance security and protect against cyber attacks. Code experts and amateurs have attempted to decipher the code over the years, but all have been unsuccessful. In 1978, cryptographers from the Department of Defence analysed the text and reported that it was impossible to provide a satisfactory answer due to its brevity lack of symbols, and the possibility that it was the meaningless product of a disturbed mind. Despite this, many people have continued to speculate about the meaning behind the code and its possible connection to the Summerton man's death. Some theories suggest that the code was a secret message or a clue to the man's identity, while others speculate that it may have been a practical joke or a meaningless string of letters. In 2004, a retired detective suggested that the final line of a cryptic note found in 1948 could stand for the initials of It's time to move to South Australia, Mosley Street. However, this theory was challenged by Derek Abbott's team from 2009 to 2011, who concluded that each letter was most likely the first letter of a word. This new theory opened up a range of possibilities, from what the note could have meant and sparked renewed interest in the case. A 2014 analysis by computational linguist John Rayling supported the theory that the letters consist of the initials of some English texts that were likely written as a form of shorthand rather than as a code. However, despite extensive research and analysis, no match for them was found in a large survey of literature. This has led to the conclusion that the original text can likely never be determined, leaving the mystery of the cryptic note unsolved and fascinating to this day. Jessica Thompson and Alf Boxall Jessica Ellen Joe Thompson was a nurse who lived in a house located about 400 metres away from where the body of the Somerton man was found. Her phone number was discovered in the back of a book, which led authorities to investigate her connection of the case. Thompson reported that an unknown man had attempted to visit her late in 1948 and asked the next-door neighbour about her. It is unknown whether this man was connected to the Summerton Man case, but his actions have been considered suspicious by investigators. Thompson's proximity to the scene of the crime and her interaction with this unknown man have made her an important figure in the investigation of the Summerton Man case, 
Further research into Thompson's life and connections to the case may provide important clues into the identity of the mysterious man and the circumstances surrounding his death. During the investigation, Thompson denied having any knowledge of the Somerton man, how he obtained her phone number or why he chose to visit her suburb on the night of his death. However, in a 2002 interview with Jerry Feltus, it was suggested that Thompson was either being evasive or she just did not wish to talk about it, and that she was aware of the identity of the Somerton man. This has raised questions on whether there was more to the relationship between Thompson and the Somerton man. She said to me she knew who he was, but she wasn't going to, to let that out of the bag, so to speak. You pretty much do accept that uh, she was a spy? I think so, yes. She had a dark side, and a very strong dark side. In a 2014 television interview with Channel 9 60 Minutes, Thompson's daughter Kate also stated that she believed her mother knew the dead man. This indicates that there may have been a family connection between Thompson and the Somerton man, or that Thompson may have had an additional knowledge about the man's background. The fact that Thompson's daughter is willing to speak publicly about her beliefs suggests that the topic of the Somerton man is still a great interest to the family, and that there may be more to the story that has yet to be revealed. There's always that fear that I've thought maybe she was responsible for his death. I don't, do I want to know that? That's a hard thing for you to carry with you, that you... There's a little bit, might yeah. Have bumped somebody off. Yeah. In 1949, a woman named Jessica Thompson, who was involved in the now-famous case, made an unusual request. She asked the police not to record her name or release her details to third parties. She feared that being associated with such a case would harm her reputation and cause her embarrassment. The police agreed to her request at the time, but this decision later proved to be a hindrance to the investigation. It is interesting to note that Thompson was referred to using different pseudonyms in media reports, books and other discussions of the case. For instance, she was often called Jestin, and was even referred to by other names such as Teresa Johnson Nee Powell. This highlights the extent to which individuals can protect their privacy and identities in certain situations, even if it poses challenges to law enforcement and the media. In 2010, Colin Feltus claimed he was given permission by Jessica Thompson's family to disclose her real name and that of her husband, Prosper Thompson. However, the names Feltus used in his book were pseudonyms and her family did not know of her connection to the case. Feltus also stated that Thompson provided him with information that helped him in his investigation of the case. Despite this, Thompson's real name was considered important because it may be the decryption key for the purported code. Did she lie to the police? Yes, she did. She told the police that she didn't know who he was and certainly I know nothing. And yet she told you that she, she did. did. And she told me that it was a mystery that was only known to a level higher than the police force. She means what, that some spook somewhere would yeah, know. Yeah, but she said it wasn't at a state police level. When she was shown the plaster cast bust of the dead man by Detective Sergeant Lean, 
Thompson said she could not identify the person depicted, but her reaction appeared to be one of shock. Paul Lawson, the technician who made the cast, and was also present when Thompson viewed it, noted that after looking at the bust, she immediately looked away and would not look at it again. This reaction may suggest that Thompson knew the person in the bust, or that she was shocked by the resemblance to someone she knew. During World War II, Jessica Thompson worked at Royal North Shore Hospital in Sydney, where she was tasked with caring for patients who had been injured in the war. It was in this environment that she turned to reading as a way to escape the harsh realities of war. One of the books she owned was Rubiat, a collection of poems that she found solace in during the downtime. In 1945, while enjoying a drink at the Clifton Gardens Hotel in Sydney, she met an Australian Army lieutenant named Alf Boxall. The two struck up a conversation, and it wasn't long before Thompson offered to lend Boxall her copy of the Rubiat. Boxall gratefully accepted the offer and promised to return the book when he was done. After lending the book to Boxall, Thompson moved to Melbourne and started a new life. She fell in love got married and started a family. It wasn't until several years later that she received a letter from Boxall. In the letter, Boxall expressed his gratitude for lending him the Rubiat and asked how she was doing. Thompson replied to Boxall's letter, informing him that she was now married and had started a family. Police spoke with Thompson and they suspected that Boxall may have been the Somerton man. However, in July 1949, Boxall was found in Sydney with the final page of his copy of the Rubiat intact. Boxall was unaware of any connection between himself and the dead man. It is worth noting that in the front of the copy of the Rubiat that was given to Boxall, Jessica Harkness had signed herself Jestin and written out verses 70. The significance of this remains an unsolved mystery to this day. Indeed, indeed. Repentance oft before I swore, but was I sober when I swore? And then, and then came spring, and rose in hand, my threadbare penitence, a pieces tore. Media Reaction The Advertiser and The News, two of the most prominent newspapers in the area during the 1940s, provided distinct accounts of the death of the Somerton Man. While both publications covered the story, they did so in their own way. The Advertiser, for instance, mentioned the case in a brief article that appeared on page 3 of its morning edition on December 2, 1948. The article, which was titled Body Found on Beach, provided only the most basic details about the discovery of the body on Somerton Beach. In contrast, the news, which was known for its in-depth coverage of important events, provided a much more detailed account of the case. Its article, which appeared on the front page of the December 2nd, 1948 edition, described the man's clothing, physical appearance and the mysterious circumstances surrounding his death. The news also provided extensive coverage of the subsequent investigation, 
including interviews with witnesses and police officials. Overall, while both newspapers covered the case, they did so in a way that reflected their own unique style and approach to journalism. A body, believed to be E.C. Johnson, about 45, of Arthur St. Paynham, was found on Somerton Beach opposite the crippled children's home yesterday morning. The discovery was made by Mr. J. Lyons of White Road, Somerton. Detective H. Strangway and Constable J. Moss are inquiring. 58. According to a journalist who wrote about the case in June 1949, the Somerton man left behind only speculation and an empty glass, alluding to the line in the Rubiart. This has led many to speculate about what really happened to him. Was he poisoned by someone who knew about unidentifiable poisons? If so, this suggests that there might be something more serious going on than just a mere domestic poisoning. Perhaps the culprit had advanced knowledge of toxic substances or even access to a laboratory. The discovery of the unknown man's body on Somerton Beach in 1948 marked the beginning of a decades-long investigation that is yet to yield conclusive answers. Despite extensive efforts, authorities have been unable to determine the man's identity or the cause of his death. The case has been shrouded in mystery, with many theories and speculations emerging over the years. In this episode, we explored the circumstances surrounding the discovery of the body, the clues that investigators found, and the many theories that have been proposed over the years to explain this strange case. The shadow of the mystery seems to linger, casting a chill over those who dare to delve into the depths of his story. Next week, in part two of our investigation into the Somerton Man, we will continue to explore the many mysteries surrounding this enigmatic case. We will delve deeper into the clues left behind by the man, including the items found in his suitcase, and examine the many theories that have been proposed over the years to explain his death. We will also explore the latest developments in the case, including the recent DNA testing that has shed new light on the Somerton man's identity. Join us as we continue to unravel the fascinating and mysterious case of the Somerton man. Thanks for listening.
the Occultaria of Albion investigates and explores a world that many believe does not exist, a world of the uncanny, where man's most ancient fears are allowed to run freely. It is not to be found in some faraway mystical land. This world is beneath your feet, at the shopping center, across the road, and around the corner from where you live. Discover the world of the Occultaria of Albion, paranormal publications and podcasts. Go to occultariaofalbion.co.uk to discover more.